Chapter 5, Parts 1 to 6 of The Passionate Friends by H. G. Wells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Peter Eastman. Chapter the Fifth The War in South Africa. 4. I came back to England at last when I was twenty six. After the peace of Ferenigung, I worked under the Repatriation Commission, which controlled the distribution of returning prisoners and concentrated population to their homes. For the most part, I was distributing stock and grain, and presently maneuvering a sort of ploughing, flying column that the dearth of horses and oxen made necessary, work that was certainly as hard as, if far less exciting, than war. That particular work of replanting the desolated country with human beings took hold of my imagination, and for a time at least seemed quite straightforward and understandable. The comfort of ceasing to destroy. No one has written anything that really conveys the quality of that repatriation process. The queer business of bringing these suspicious, illiterate, despondent people back to their desolated homes, reuniting swarthy fathers and stockish mothers, witnessing their touchingly inexpressive encounters, doing what one could to put heart into their resumption. Memories come back to me of great littered heaps of luggage, bundles, blankets, rough boxes, piled newly purchased stores, ready-made doors, window sashes, heaped ready for the wagons, slow-moving, apathetic figures sitting and eating, an infernal squawking of parrots, sometimes a wailing of babies. Repatriation went on to a parrot obligato, and I never hear a parrot squawk without a flash of South Africa across my mind. All the prisoners, I believe, brought back parrots, some two or three. I had to spread these people out over a country still grassless, with teams of war-worn oxen, mules, and horses that died by the dozen on my hands. The end of each individual instance was a handshake, and one went lumbering on, leaving the children one had deposited behind one, already playing with old ration tins or hunting about for cartridge cases while the adults stared at the work they had to do. There was something elementary in all that redistribution. I felt at times like a child playing in a nursery and putting out its bricks and soldiers on the floor. There was a kind of greatness, too, about the process, a quality of atonement. And the people I was taking back, the men anyhow, were for the most part charming and wonderful people, very simple and emotional, so that once a big-bearded man, when I wanted him in the face of an overflowing wagon, to abandon about half a dozen great angular-colored West Indian shells he had lugged with him from Bermuda, burst into tears of disappointment. I let him take them, and at the end I saw them placed with joy and reverence in the little parlor, to become the war heirlooms, no doubt, of a long and bearded family. As we shook hands after our parting coffee, he glanced at them with something between gratitude and triumph in his eyes. 
Yes, that was a great work, more especially for a ripening youngster such as I was at that time. The memory of long rides and tramps over that limitless felt returns to me, lonely in spite of the creaking, lumbering wagons and transport riders and kaffirs that followed behind. South Africa is a country not only of immense spaces, but of an immense spaciousness. Everything is far apart. Even the grass blades are far apart. Sometimes one crossed wide stony wastes, sometimes came stretches of tall yellow-green grass, wheel-high, sometimes a little green patch of returning cultivation drew nearer for an hour or so. Sometimes the blundering, toilsome passage of a torrent interrupted our slow onward march. And constantly one saw long lines of torn and twisted barbed wire stretching away and away. And here and there one found archipelagos, as it were, in this dry ocean of the skeletons of cattle. And there were places where troops had halted, and their scattered ration tins shone like diamonds in the sunshine. Occasionally I struck talk, some returning prisoner, some group of discharged British soldiers, become carpenters or bricklayers again, and making their pound a day by the work of rebuilding. Always everyone was ready to expatiate upon the situation. Usually, however, I was alone, thinking over this immense, now vanished tornado of a war and this equally astonishing work of healing that was following it. I became keenly interested in all this great business, and thought at first of remaining indefinitely in Africa. Repatriation was presently done and finished. I had won Milner's good opinion, and he was anxious for me to go on working, in relation to the labor difficulty that rose now more and more into prominence behind the agricultural resettlement. But when I faced that, I found myself in the middle of a tangle infinitely less simple than putting back an agricultural population upon its land. 5. For the first time in my life I was really looking at the social fundamental of labor. There is something astonishingly naive in the unconsciousness with which people of our class float over the great economic realities. All my life I had been hearing of the working classes, of industrialism, of labor problems, and the organization of labor. But it was only now in South Africa, in this chaotic, crude, illuminating period of putting a smashed and desolated social order together again, that I perceived these familiar phrases represented something, something stupendously real. There were, I began to recognize, two sides to civilization. One traditional, immemorial, universal, the side of the homestead, the side I had been seeing and restoring. And there was another, ancient too, but never universal, as old at least as the mines of Syracuse and the building of the pyramids, the side that came into view when I emerged from the dusty station and sighted the squat shanties and slender chimneys of Johannesburg, that uprooted side of social life, 
that accumulation of toilers divorced from the soil, which is industrialism and labor, and which carries such people as ourselves, and whatever significance and possibilities we have, as an elephant carries its rider. Now all Johannesburg and Pretoria were discussing labor, and nothing but labor. Bloemfontein was in conference thereon. Our work of repatriation, which had loomed so large on the southernward veldt, became here a business at once incidental and remote. One felt that, a little sooner or a little later, all that would resume and go on, as the rains would and the veldt grass. But this was something less kindred to the succession of the seasons and the soil. This was a hitch in the upper fabric. Here, in the great, ugly, mine-scarred basin of the Rant, with its bare hillsides, half the stamps were standing idle. Machinery was eating its head off. Time and water were running to waste amidst an immense, exasperated disputation. Something had given way. The war had spoiled the Kaffir boy. He was demanding enormous wages. He was away from Johannesburg. And, above all, he would no longer go underground. Implicit in all the argument and suggestion about me was this profoundly suggestive fact that some people, quite a lot of people, scores of thousands, had to go underground. Implicit, too, always in the discourse, was the assumption that the talker or writer in question wasn't for a moment to be expected to go there. Those others, whoever they were, had to do that for us. Before the war it had been the artless Portuguese Kaffir, but he, alas, was being diverted to open-air employment at Delagoa Bay. Should we raise wages? and go on with the fatal process of spoiling the workers? Should we, by imposing a tremendous hut-tax, drive the Kaffir into our toils? Should we carry the labor-hunt across the Zambezi into Central Africa? Should we follow the lead of Lord Kitchener and Mr. Creswell, and employ the rather dangerous unskilled white labor, with ideas about strikes and socialism, that had drifted into Johannesburg, should we do tremendous things with labor-saving machinery? Or were we indeed, desperate yet tempting resort, to bring in the cheap Indian or Chinese coolie? Steadily things were drifting towards that last tremendous experiment. There was a vigorous opposition in South Africa and in England, growing there to an outcry. But, Behind that proposal was the one vitalizing conviction in modern initiative. Indisputably, it would pay. It would pay. The human mind has a much more complex and fluctuating process than most of those explanatory people who write about psychology would have us believe. Instead of that simple, direct movement, like the movement of a point, forward and from here to there, one's thoughts advanced like an army, sometimes extended over an enormous front, sometimes in echelon, sometimes bunched in a column, throwing out skirmishing clouds of emotion, some flying and soaring, some crawling, 
some stopping and dying. In this matter of labor, for example, I have thought so much, thought over the ground again and again, come into it from this way and from that way, that for the life of me I find it impossible to state at all clearly how much I made of these questions during that Johannesburg time. I cannot get back into those ancient ignorances, revive my old astonishments and discoveries. Certainly I envisaged the whole process much less clearly than I do now, ignored difficulties that have since entangled me, regarded with a tremendous perplexity aspects that have now become lucidly plain. I came back to England confused, and doing what confused people are apt to do, clinging to an inadequate phrase that seemed at any rate to define a course of action. The word efficiency had got hold of me. All our troubles came, one assumed, from being inefficient. One turned towards politics with a bustling air, and was all for fault-finding and renovation. I sit here at my desk, pen in hand, and trace figures on the blotting-paper, and wonder how much I understood at that time. I came back to England to work on the side of efficiency, that is quite certain. A little later I was writing articles and letters about it, so that much is documented. But I think I must have apprehended too by that time, some vague outline at least, of those wider issues in the secular conflict between the new forms of human association and the old, to which contemporary politics and our national fate are no more than transitory eddies and rufflings of the surface waters. It was all so nakedly plain there. On the one hand was the primordial, on the other the rankly new. The farm on the veldt stood on the veldt, a thing of the veldt, a thing rooted and established there and nowhere else. The dusty, crude, brickfield desolation of the rant, on the other hand, did not really belong with any particularity to South Africa at all. It was one with our camps and armies. It was part of something else, something still bigger. A monstrous shadowy arm had thrust out from Europe and torn open this country, erected these chimneys, piled these heaps, and sent the ration tins and cartridge cases to follow them. It was gigantic kindred with that ancient predecessor which had built the walls of Zimbabwe. And this hungry, impatient demand for myriads of toilers, this threatening inundation of black or brown or yellow bond serfs, was just the natural voice of this colossal system to which I belonged, which had brought me hither, and which I now perceived I did not even begin to understand. One day, when asking my way to some forgotten destination, I had pointed out to me the Gray and Robert's deep mine. Some familiarity in the name set me thinking, until I recalled that this was the mine in which I had once heard Lady Ladislaw confess large holdings, this mine in which gangs of indentured Chinamen would presently be sweating to pay the wages of the gamekeepers and roadmenders in Burnmore Park. Yes, this was what I was taking in at that time, 
but it found me inexpressive. What I was saying on my return to England gave me no intimation of the broad conceptions growing in my mind. I came back to be one of the many scores of energetic and ambitious young men who were parroting efficiency, stirring up people, and more particularly stirring up themselves with the utmost vigor. And all the time, within their secret hearts, more than a little at a loss. 6. While I had been in South Africa, circumstances had conspired to alter my prospects in life very greatly. Unanticipated freedoms and opportunities had come to me, and it was no longer out of the question for me to think of a parliamentary career. Our fortunes had altered. My father had ceased to be rector of Burnmore, and had become a comparatively wealthy man. My second cousin, Reginald Stratton, had been drowned in Finland, and his father had only survived the shock of his death a fortnight. His sister, Arthur Mason's first wife, had died in giving birth to a stillborn child the year before, and my father found himself suddenly the owner of all that large stretch of developing downland and building land which old Reginald had bought between Shattuck and Golding on the south and West Desher Station on the north, and in addition of considerable investments in northern industrials. It was an odd collusion of mortality. We had had only the coldest relations with our cousins, and now, abruptly, through their commercial and speculative activities, which we had always affected to despise and ignore, I was in a position to attempt the realization of my old political ambitions. My cousin's house had not been to my father's taste. He had let it, and I came to a new home, in a pleasant, plain, red-brick house, a hundred and fifty years old, perhaps, on an open and sunny hillside, sheltered by trees eastward and northward, a few miles to the southwest of Guildford. It had all the gracious proportions, the dignified simplicity, the roomy comfort of the good building of that time. It looked sunward. We breakfasted in sunshine in the library, and outside was an old wall, with peach trees and a row of pillar roses heavily in flower. I had a little feared this place. Burnmore Rectory had been so absolutely home to me, with its quiet serenities, its ample familiar garden, its greenhouses and intimately known corners. But I perceived I might have trusted my father's character to preserve his essential atmosphere. He was so much himself as I remembered him, that I did not even observe for a day or so that he had not only aged considerably, but discarded the last vestiges of clerical costume in his attire. He met me in front of the house, and led me into a wide-panelled hall, and wrung my hand again and again, deeply moved and very inexpressive. "'Did you have a good journey?' he asked again and again, with tears in his eyes. "'Did you have a comfortable journey?' "'I've not seen the house,' said I. "'It looks fine.' "'You're a man,' he said, and patted my shoulder. "'Of course, it was at Burnmore.' "'You're not changed,' I said. "'You're not an atom changed.' 
How could I? he replied. Come, come and have something to eat. You ought to have something to eat. We talked of the house, and what a good house it was. And he took me out into the garden to see the peaches and grapevine, and then brought me back without showing them to me, in order to greet my cousin. It's very like Birdmore, he said, with his eyes devouring me. Very like, a little more space, and no services, no services at all. That makes a gap, of course. There's a little chap about here you'll find, his name is Wednesday, who sorts my papers and calls himself my secretary. Not necessary, perhaps, but I missed the curate. He said he was reading more than he used to do, now that the parish was off his hands, and he was preparing material for a book. It was, he explained later, to take the form of a huge essay, ostensibly on secular canons, but its purport was to be no less than the complete secularization of the Church of England. At first he wanted merely to throw open the cathedral chapters to distinguished laymen, irrespective of their theological opinions, and to make each English cathedral a centre of intellectual activity, a college, as it were, of philosophers and writers. But afterwards his suggestions grew bolder. The articles of religion were to be set aside, the creeds made optional even for the clergy. His dream became more and more richly picturesque, until at last he saw Canterbury a realized Thelema, and St. Paul's a new academic grove. He was to work at that remarkable proposal intermittently for many years, and to leave it at last no more than a shapeless mass of memoranda, fragmentary essays, and selected passages for quotation. Yet, mere patchwork and scrapbook as it would be, I still have some thought of publishing it. There is a large human charity about it, a sun too broad and warm, a reasonableness too wide and free, perhaps, for the timid, convulsive quality of our time, yet all good as good wine for the wise. Is it incredible that a day should come when our great grey monuments to the Norman spirit should cease to be occupied by narrow-witted parsons and besieged by narrow-souled dissenters, the soul of our race in exile from the home and place our fathers built for it? If he was not perceptibly changed, I thought my cousin Jane had become more than a little sharper and stiffer. She did not like my uncle's own personal secularization, and still less the glimpses she got of the ampler intentions of his book. She missed the proximity to the church and her parochial authority. But she was always a silent woman, and made her comments with her profile and not with her tongue. "'I'm glad you've come back, Stephen,' said my father, as we sat together after dinner and her departure, with port and tall silver candlesticks and shining mahogany between us. I've missed you. I've done my best to follow things out there. I've got, I suppose, every press mention there's been of you during the war and since. I've subscribed to two press-cutting agencies, so that if one missed you, the other fellow got you. Perhaps you'll like to read them over one of these days. You see, 
there's not been a soldier in the family since the Peninsular War, and so I've been particularly interested. You must tell me all the things you're thinking of, and what you mean to do. This last stuff, this Chinese business, it puzzles me. I want to know what you think of it, and everything. I did my best to give him my ideas, such as they were, and as they were still very vague ideas, I have no doubt he found me rhetorical. I can imagine myself talking of the white man's burthen, and how in Africa it had seemed at first to sit rather staggeringly upon our under-trained shoulders. I spoke of slackness and planlessness. I've come back in search of efficiency. I have no doubt I said that at any rate. We're trying to run this big empire, I may have explained, with undertrained, undereducated, poor-spirited stuff, and we shall come a cropper unless we raise our quality. I'm still imperialist, more than ever I was, but I'm an imperialist on a different footing. I've no great illusions left about the superiority of the Anglo-Saxons. All that has gone. But I do think it will be a monstrous waste a disaster to human possibilities, if this great liberal-spirited empire sprawls itself asunder for the want of a little gravity and purpose. And it's here the work has to be done, the work of training and bracing up and stimulating the public imagination. Yes, that would be the sort of thing I should have said in those days. There's an old national review on my desk as I write, containing an article by me with some of those fairy phrases in it. I have been looking at it in order to remind myself of my own forgotten eloquence. Yes, I remember my father saying, yes. And then, after reflection, but those coolies, those Chinese coolies, you can't build up an imperial population by importing coolies. I don't like that side of the business myself. I said, it's detail. Perhaps, but the liberals will turn you out on it next year, and then start badgering public houses and looting the church, and then this tariff talk. Everybody on our side seems to be mixing up the unity of the empire with tariffs. It's a pity. Salisbury wouldn't have stood it. Unity. Unity depends on a common literature and a common language, and common ideas and sympathies. It doesn't unite people for them to be forced to trade with each other. Trading isn't friendship. I don't trade with my friends, and I don't make friends with my tradesmen. Natural enemies, polite of course, but antagonists. Are you keen over this tariff stuff, Steve? Not a bit, I said. That, too, seems a detail. It doesn't seem to be keeping its place as a detail, said my father. Very few men can touch tariffs and not get a little soiled. I hate all this international sharping, all these attempts to get artificial advantages, all this making poor people buy inferior goods dear in the name of the flag. If it comes to that, damn the flag! Custom houses are ugly things, Stephen, the dirty side of nationality. Dirty things, ignoble, cross, cunning things. They wake you up in the small hours and rout over your bags. 
an imperial people ought to be an urbane people, a civilizing people, above such petty, irritating things. I'd as soon put barbed wire along the footpath across that field where the village children go to school, or claim that our mushrooms are cultivated, or prosecute a Sunday society cockney for picking my primroses. Custom houses, indeed! It's Chinese. There are things a great country mustn't do, Stephen. A country like ours ought to get along without the manners of a hard-breathing competitive cad. If it can't, I'd rather it didn't get along. What's the good of a huckster country? It's like having a wife on the streets. It's no excuse that she brings you money. But since the peace and that man Chamberlain's visit to Africa, you imperialists seem to have got this nasty spirit all over you. The Germans do it, you say. My father shut one eye and regarded the color of his port against the waning light. Let him, he said, fancy quoting the Germans. When I was a boy, there weren't any Germans. They came up after seventy. Statecraft from Germany, and statesmen from Birmingham. German silver and electroplated empires. No. It's just a part of our narrow outlook, I answered from the hearthrug, after a pause. It's because we're so limited that everyone is translating the greatness of empire into preferential trading and jealousy of Germany. It's for something bigger than that that I've returned. Those big things come slowly, said my father. And then, with a sigh, age after age, they seem at times to be standing still. Good things go with the bad, bad things come with the good. I remember him saying that, as though I could still hear him. It must have been after dinner, for he was sitting, duskily indistinct, against the light, with a voice coming out to him. The candles had not been brought in, and the view one saw through the big plate-glass window behind him was very clear and splendid. Those little Wealden hills in Surrey and Sussex assume at times, for all that by Swiss standards they are the merest ridges of earth, the dignity and mystery of great mountains. Now the crests of Hindhead and Blackdown, purple-black against the level gold of the evening sky, might have been some high-flung boundary chain. Nearer, there gathered banks and pools of luminous, lavender-tinted mist, out of which hills of pinewood rose like islands out of the sea. The intervening spaces were magnified to continental dimensions. And the closer, lowlier things over which we looked, the cottages below us, were grey and black and dim, pierced by a few luminous orange windows, and with a solitary street-lamp shining like a star. The village might have been nestling a mountain's height below, instead of a couple of hundred feet. I left my hearth-rug and walked to the window to survey this. Who's got all that land stretching away there, that little blooded sierra of pines and escarpments, I mean? 
my father halted for an instant in his answer, and glanced over his shoulder. "'Wardingham and Baxter share all this coppices,' he remarked. "'They come up to my corner on each side.' "'But the dark heather and pine-land beyond, with just the gables of a house among the trees—' "'Oh, that,' he said, with a careful note of indifference, "'that's Justin. You know Justin.' He used to come to Birdmore Park. End of chapter 5